0: We're going to read um, from 1 Peter, our passage for today, 1 Peter chapter 1, the first 12 verses, on page 7 of your worship folder. God's Word says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia Things into which angels long to look. This is God's word.
1: Well, there's a couple of things that you should know as we begin, as we are starting a series today on One Peter, and we'll be in the book of One Peter as we go through it uh, for about the next two and a half months. So it'll be a little bit of time, so you will know every Sunday before you show up that we're going to be in 1 Peter. So I would encourage you that during this time to take every week at some point to sit down and read the book of 1 Peter. That way you'll have it fresh in your mind as we come to it. It'll be good for you to, if you can't read it, just listen to it. You can also listen to it, find a way to do that. If you have like devices and Bible apps, you have the ability to do that, but that way it continues to sort of be in your heart. It continues to be in your mind, and it gives you the places where we're going, number one. The second thing that I want you to know is that 1 Peter is written in a broad sort of group of people, people that are all over. So many of Paul's letters are written to specific sort of churches or a group of churches in a particular area. What we see happening here is Peter is writing to a broad sort of group of people in his writing. And so it's one of those things that it's kind of gives us the sense that it's not as personal of a letter <laughs> that uh, Paul usually writes. Paul is usually addressing something going on in a church. This is sort of Peter saying out, crying out, saying to all those, hey, look, all those who are in this dispersion, who are cast out, who are moved into exile." This is a good word for you. And we're part of that. (laughs) Now, it's not that we're not part of the church that that Paul's talking to as well. But it's sort of that great sort of place where we're like, yeah, there are some specific things that Paul was dealing with here. And here, while there are specific things that he's dealing with, it's not springing up. He's not answering something that's going on. It's almost as if he's saying, look, stuff is happening. And I know stuff is happening. And it's happening everywhere. And I want to make sure you know it. And so it happens here as well. So it's one of the reasons why I felt led to sort of bring this book to us. The title of this sermon is the Both and of Gospel Living. And in our own hearts and our own minds, we tend to operate as either or type people. We tend to be folks who want either this or That It becomes very hard for us to operate in the in-between. That, well, can I have both this and that? So, uh, for instance, um, if you make a tuna fish salad, um, some people like relish and uh, pickle relish, sweet pickle relish, and celery, and maybe a little bit of onion and mayonnaise. And there's some... Uh, other folks who don't like the celery or the relish or the onion or th- an egg that might get thrown in there. And if you bring one of the tuna fish sandwiches that has something that somebody doesn't like, they will go, that's not tuna fish. That is something of an, uh, uh, of an anomaly of what you think you're calling tuna fish. It's not. Because tuna fish is only this, the way I like it and the way I make it. And you're saying tuna fish has this, and that's not tuna fish. That's something that's wrong. It shouldn't have egg in it, or it shouldn't have sweet relish. Now that's silly, but think about it in your own hearts, in your own lives. What things do you hold that says the exact thing, this cannot be going along with this? We all do it. It's simple things. It's large things. Now, don't get me wrong. There are definitely things that should never be. (laughs) Right? There are definitely black and white. There are definitely those things that are wrong and those things that are right. So I'm not speaking like, oh, everything's open for interpretation. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is our heart tends to want to say, well, I'm either this or that. And what we see in this first 12 verses of Peter is that really it's not a this or that. It's not an either or. It is a both and in the gospel. And and there's um, really about five things that are both and for us in the gospel. The first one is this, is that we are elect, right, we are heirs, we are elect, and we are exiles. We are those without a home. Now, catch this. An heir is somebody, an is somebody that has all of the promise, all that is going to come to them. They are seen as worthy in the family. They are the ones who can stand up and say, I'm part of this, it is mine, I will inherit it, or I have inherited it, and it is everything. An exile is someone who says, I have no home, I have no place, I have no comfort, And it's very easy for us in our minds to go, well, we either were heirs or we're exiles. But Paul, right, I mean, Peter right off the bat says this, to those who are the elect exiles, further down, the reason why I say that heir is because he tells us that we have an inheritance that is in us and for us that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. So we rest in this unique place where we are not only receiving new sonship and daughtership, becoming heirs by God, but we are also put into a place where we are other. A lot of folks have have sort of thought about that and said, yes, we're not of this world. We're, we're not to belong to this world. And that's true. Why? Because we're in exile. But we're for this world. And we move into it. Ms. Vol says this about this particular thing, about what it means to really be an exile. And I think we need to catch it. He said Christians aren't those who enter into the social world from outside seeking to accommodate this new world that they're in, much like second generation immigrants, right? Like folks who their parents came over to a new land and then they're born here and then they have to figure out what it's like to live among both cultures, right? And so they want to accommodate a lot of the new culture to be able to be accepted, to be able to be seen as in that culture. So he's saying that's not a Christian. He says Christians are also not, don't take the shape of coming into a land as an exile and then trying to shape it like the old land they came from, like colonizers. Those who came in and said, look, hey, how how many of you have been to Parliament House here? Do you realize that in Parliament House there's this great picture that is up in Parliament House. It's a beautiful looking like English garden that's in Parliament House. And that beautiful looking English garden is supposed to be Perth. It was actually taken from a brochure that they sent back to England to get people to come over to Perth. So what they were saying is Western Australia is just like England. It's beautiful. It's got English gardens. It's got all the things that you're used to. We're here building the new England. We're, we're building a new place for you to fill right at home. And that's not at all what it looks like. What Vol says is that we don't come in and try and reshape the culture to match the culture we came from. That's not what a Christian is. He says a Christian is not those as well, who come in and establish a little haven in a strange new world, like their old one. So it's not one that comes in and tries to accommodate. It's not one that comes in and says, you've got to be just like us, like my old life, like my old world. A Christian is also not one that comes into this new sort of social setting and says, we're going to stay right here behind these walls and we'll have our own little neighborhood, and nobody can come into our neighborhood that doesn't look like us. And it's like walking through New York City, and you come into the Orthodox Jew community. It's completely different. Because they've caused themselves safe haven. I dare say there's places like that just outside of Perth, where people have gathered together, into a little enclave and said, we don't want to be in the world, we don't want to be of the world, and we want to be safe and secure. And so they keep themselves in that way. And he says this, we're not those who maintain our outsider status. That's not what we're trying to do either. That's what that last group tries to do. They want to have no outsider come in. They want to maintain their outsider status. But they also want to be accepted. What he says that we are as exiles is this. Catch it. We are actually insiders who have diverted. See, (laughs) we were in the world. And when God came into the world and moved us out of darkness into light, from death into life, he moved us into a brand new identity and citizenship. So we were once inside. We were insiders, completely and fully. And and next week, we will talk about just how insider we were. But what God does is he comes in and he says, I've made you an heir. I've made you. I've chosen you. And in doing that, I've made you an exile because you've now diverted from the way the world operates. You've now diverted from the way that you had grown up, your former life. So what makes us as an exile is not that we've been put in some foreign land. It's the fact that we were here all along. It's just everything about us has changed. Oh, it's so much easier, really, to either accommodate. It's so much easier just to pull back and build safety. It's so much easier for us to come in and say, you have to be like us. But what Vols challenges us to do is, he says this, we have to step into the world as those who are the elect Exiles, and we have to look at which beliefs and practices of the culture that is ours. We have to look at that culture and say, What must we reject now that ourselves have been reconstituted by new birth? And we have to look at which we can retain, and we have to look at what needs to be reshaped in order to reflect better the values of God's new creation. See, it's not a place of acceptance or a place of complete rejection. It's a place of allowing the Spirit to bring us into a place and saying, in my former self, what were the things that were pure and good and true? Jesus says, I am the truth. Now, we all have truths that we live with, subjectively, that we all operate in. And we have to bring those truths before the truth and allow the truth to go, yes, that aligns with me. Or no, that doesn't, and you must get rid of it. Or no, it doesn't, but I will reshape it to make it holy. So that's what it's like to live in an exile. So it's not as if we're one or the other. It's that we stand as an exile, as someone who will feel different, as someone who will be estranged, as someone who will have people look at us and go, why are you so weird? But at the same time, We are able to stand in the knowledge and the assurance that we are gods. And we are elect and heirs with him. How amazing is that? So the first place that we live in this both and is that we are elect, heirs, and we are exiles. The second place that we live is we live in this place of obtained and not yet. How many of you in your lives live at a place often that you're thinking, Lord Jesus, just come now. It'd be really great if you'd just come now. Then I wouldn't have to worry about this job, or I wouldn't have to worry about my knee, or I wouldn't have to worry about this sick person, or I wouldn't have to worry about this person that really bothers me, or I wouldn't have to worry about this. Lord Jesus, just come now. Forgetting that we actually live in the place where Christ has come already. Now, what Peter's talking about here is much more in depth for us. What he's saying, and you'll notice this, is that it's about our salvation. Look at verse 5. He says this that you've received this inheritance, who by God's powers are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times, the not yet. But at the same time, in verse 8, in verse 9, he says this, though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy, obtaining the outcome of your faith, that it's already been obtained, that you are in the process of holding on to it. This is so important for us to grasp. The fact that, We live in the already and not yet. That when I look at myself and I I begin to see that for some reason I keep tripping into and falling into and purposefully moving towards things that separate me from the love of God, that put me on his throne, it can become very disheartening and depressing. It can become very hard for us. But if I recognize That I already am in Christ. If I recognize that I've already been completely saved, that on the cross all things that ever needed to take place for the whole renewal of the world happened at that moment, then I am powerfully, steadfastly standing on the promise of God. Yet at the same time, I know that I don't know it fully yet. That there is more to be revealed, that there is something magnificent that is coming. And it causes me to be able to live with the hope that is said there. I do not get disheartened, but I have hope. Why? Because I've been given this new life. I have hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm. So we are both elect and we are exiles. We have both obtained salvation, yet not yet received it fully. We are also those who are joyful and those who are grieved. It is the both and of the gospel life for us to live in a place where we are joyful and grieved. Listen to these words. In this you rejoice. What is this that we rejoice? That God has given us an inheritance that is unperishable, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, that leads us to salvation. In this, we rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested, so that te- the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through the testifier may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That you are filled with rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible. We live in a place where there are various trials that will come. Now, some have looked at this and said, oh, this must be talking about persecution. And the reality is, is when this was written, probably persecution wasn't quite happening yet. And so it's not about persecution. As a matter of fact, the words that he uses there, used throughout the New Testament for various trials, mean multiple different things. Now, it's all trials. It's all sort of things that happen to us. But they kind of align themselves in different ways. So those trials could be this. There might be seasons in life when you lack provision or power or position or protection or a sense of permanency or it could mean that there are times when you have become the recipient of verbal or physical persecution that arises it could mean that there is a pain that we experience by those who are loved ones there is also that sort of pain that we have when we see our own bodies wasting away and those who we love wasting away And then there's also the trials that includes those dark moments in our lives when Satan is seeking, as Peter says later, those whom he may devour. And we feel the attack coming on us. Look, as exiles, as those who were in but now are out, we're going to feel things. There will be attacks. There will be places where we're just not quite fitting in anymore. That's going to happen to us. And it will grieve us. There are family members who might not talk to us anymore when our lives change. There are friends that we can no longer associate with because we know that they will lead us down a path of destruction. And that grieves us because they were good friends. Not only that, we live in a world where we are falling apart. (laughs) Entropy is not a fantasy, (laughs) it is a reality. It is coming on us. Every day, when you wake up and you hear your bones creak, you know, yes. And we grieve. There are people who treat you poorly that think only of themselves. And there are times when you think only of yourself. And you treat others poorly. There's an actor, he's a big man named Terry Crews. He just recently got an award for being an advocate for men and women all around the world. And he says one of the things that changed his heart, the one thing that changed the way that he was looking is that he was looking back And he'd grown up in an abusive family, and he said, I never abused my kids or my wife, but I inherited some things that I didn't recognize. And he said that he was watching videos of his daughter, who was six and seven and eight, and he was hearing himself, and the way he puts it is, I was screaming at her like she was a 30-year-old man, because it was my way or the highway, no matter how old you were and no matter who you were. And I was treating my six-year-old daughter, the apple in my eye, like some 30-year-old man who I hated and despised. And he saw it in the home video. And he recognized and he grieved. When we see the depths of our own sin, we grieve. But we don't just live in grief. We just don't have to endure those for a moment. We also stand in joy. Because we know that we have overcome those already. Why? Because we're not just in exile in a foreign land, but we are elect. We are heirs, right? We have not just hoped to receive something. We have already received and obtained this thing. And so we're able to be joyful in what God has done. The fourth place where we are at in the both and is that we are both eternal and there are things in our life that are temporary. There are things about us and in us and through us that are eternal and then there are things that are temporary that will pass away. We see that. It is only for a while that we experience these grievances. It is only for a while that we have those. But what do we know about this inheritance? It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Look, imperishable means that it'll live forever. Undefiled means it will never not be pure. It will always be pure. It cannot be made dirty. And unfading means it cannot be corrupted. It will not fade. It will always maintain its glory and majesty. It is eternal these things. And so we live in this both and where we know that when we experience these trials that they are but for a moment and that eternity is now and waits for me that I have obtained it and it is yet to come. And so I can stand there and withstand the grievances and withstand the trials. And glory be to God that he does not make me do that by myself. Oh, he doesn't make us do it by ourselves. He gathers people around us who are the same. Why? Peter's not talking to one person in this book. He's talking to multiple people. And he knows that they are coming around each other and caring for one another and guarding each other. But the last place that is the both and is not about us. The last place that is the both and that Peter is speaking about here is not really regarding us to begin with. Oh, maybe it's another both and, hey. I'm going to start in verse 9 and we'll go towards verse 10. Though you have not seen him, You love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We're speaking of Jesus Christ here. He says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the same things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Just a quick aside, I want you to notice there that Peter grabs all of Scripture. He grabs all of Scripture in that statement, right? He says, look, It is. All the Old Testament, the prophets, we bring that together, and it is everything that we're teaching you now, the New Testament. So we can stand firm that the hall of Scripture is leading us to what? The salvation that is in Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Just a quick aside. But what this both and is, is about Christ. And it is that he is a suffering servant and one that is glorified. That this Jesus, this one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who sits on the throne in heaven by God Almighty, the one who is God incarnate in flesh, the one who when we see him, we see all of who God is, that one suffered. And it doesn't diminish the glory of God. It doesn't take anything away from it. As a matter of fact, it enhances it for us to understand that part of God's glory is his relentless, relentless, loving pursuit of us. That he says, I can't get enough of you. And I'm going to send my son who's going to suffer for you. Oh, we see it quite clearly right at the beginning of the book. Right there in verse two, where Paul lays out the Trinitarian understanding of salvation. That according to God's foreknowledge, that he knows us, he knows who we are, and he knows those with whom he is saving. That in the sanctification of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to change us and transform us. Jeremiah and Isaiah tells us, move us from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. For the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood. Exodus 24 talks about for us what was taking place. And Peter very well might be alluding to this happening. I'm going to turn there in my Bible. You can get there too in your device or in your Bible if you have one. Exodus 24 verses 3 through 8. He says this, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord and he rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men off to the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and then said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people, and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. We know in the history of the Israelite people, they didn't do a great job remembering that. We know that we don't do that great of a job remembering it. But what we know is more powerful than the blood of oxen is the blood of Jesus that is sprinkled upon us, that brings us to the place of salvation. And so in His suffering, He is glorified. And in His suffering, we are glorified. We are brought into a new place. John talks about this when he relates to us Jesus' high priestly prayer in chapter 17. This idea that we are both and. This idea that we are not just elect, but that we are exiles. That we have not just already obtained our salvation, but that we're waiting for salvation. That we can be joyful even though we are grieving. That we have things that are eternal about us, and those things that are temporary that will pass away. That God is glorified in all things, but in suffering he is glorified. As well. John 17, Jesus is praying and he says this about us I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You see, our challenge and our understanding from 1 Peter and from the prayer of Jesus is that even though we are exiles and even though we are elects in that place, we are not supposed to stand still that just as Jesus said, I've not given them to the world, they're not of the world, I'm protecting them from the world, but not just that, I'm sending them into the world. We go forth as a community who loves God and loves others, seeking after those who are lost. In their book, Everyday Church, Tim Chester and Steve Timmons, it's a book based on 1 Peter. They say this, we have become outsiders just as Jesus was an outsider. We are marginal in our culture because Jesus is marginal. The cross is the ultimate expression of marginalization. And to follow Jesus is to take up our cross daily, daily to experience this marginalization. Being on the margin is normal for the Christian experience. Christendom was an aberration. Rather than assuming we should have a voice in the media or on the high street, we need to regain the sense that anything other than persecution is an unexpected bonus. But, Peter says this, we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And just as we share in Christ's suffering, so we will share in the glories that would follow. God has chosen us for a purpose It says later that out of this nation you will be a treasured possession, he says. Although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. It's the doctrine of election. God chooses us. And it's never intended for indulgence. Its purpose is always mission. To be sent. And look, they say, we can not only survive on the margins... We can thrive. From the margins, we point to God's coming world and offer an alternative lifestyle, alternative values, and relationships. A community which proves to be incredibly attractive. 1 Peter equips us to go back into the world, into our classrooms, into our boardrooms, into our neighborhoods, into our factories, into our playgrounds, as men and women, who, like our Savior before us, can be marginal, yet be truly world changers. Let's pray. Father God, you are holy and righteous and worthy of all praise and glory. We give you honor today. Guide us in our understanding of this book. And may these words be your words, and if they are not, let them burn up. But if they are your words, let them take root in our heart to bring you glory and honor and praise. Amen.